Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. Hi, everybody. It's summer. (laughs) It's July. I can't believe it. The year has flown by so far. And I'm really happy to be here with Naomi Miller, who's the author of the book Imperfect Alchemist, and also a professor at Smith College in literature and women's studies. And I, I heard her talk at my 45th Smith reunion, and it was just great to to get to know her there and to read her book. And I just thought it would be fun to have her on this podcast. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you, Suzanne. Great. Anyway, so talk a little bit, you know, it's not totally uncommon for professors to people who've been studying his, history, at least, to be to decide they want to be historical novelists. What from your world as a professor of literature and women's studies made you decide to tackle this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I had a really strong impetus to do this because I have been a scholar in the field of early modern women's studies, which is basically focusing on Renaissance women authors for the last, say, 30 years. And I've published multiple um, scholarly books on different women authors. And But after a while, you realize, and I teach at Smith College, I teach classes in women authors. So I'm passionate about women authors in the time of Shakespeare. But I realized that I'm one of a handful of internationally known scholars in this field. Say all 10 of us really know each other. And there's another 10 outside that circle who are working. There's new scholars, excitingly, working on this. But so many people have no idea. When I teach Shakespeare, they think, how did Shakespeare invent those women characters? And I'll say, actually, he didn't just make them whole cloth out of his brain. He was brilliant, but he was a magpie. He took from all sorts of models and sources. And Shakespeare was very aware of the women authors who were published at the time that he was writing. And many people don't even realize that there were women authors who were published in the English Renaissance. So I thought it's not enough just to be a scholar or even just a teacher in college level about women authors. I want a wider general public to know there were women authors at the time of Shakespeare. So I thought I should start writing historical fiction. And I conceived the idea for a whole series of novels called Shakespeare's Sisters, which is basically an homage to Virginia Woolf, who had speculated that if Shakespeare had a sister with the equal gifts, she would have gone mad and committed suicide because she never had been allowed to be a writer. And what Virginia Woolf did not know at that point earlier in the 20th century was that there were women authors published at the time. And why did she not know? Because those women authors were suppressed. They weren't put into the canon. They were actually known in the period. Shakespeare knew about them. Ben Jonson knew about them, dedicated a play to one of them. Milton knew about them. The writers of the time, the male writers, knew about these women authors, but they were not admitted into the canon of what we consider English literature. So they're not, they for many centuries, they were not taught. They were not read in undergraduate classes. And we're starting to rectify that. But like I said, I think there needs to be a bigger push to the general public so people can know about them. Yeah, I, I know. I could totally sympathize with that because I studied, I did music history oh, and, yeah. at Yale and I and I didn't manage to get a teaching job except for one visiting assistant professorship and at Columbia, which was awesome. Ooh, but, yeah. but I then realized very quickly afterwards that there were all these stories that had to do with how women interacted with music in the periods I was interested in. And 
I could write about them and get them to a wider audience. So I completely understand that impetus for sure. So talk about a little bit about the heroine of your book. Yeah. Yeah. So really, I would say there's two female leads in my book. One is the historically renowned figure of the woman author, Mary Sidney Herbert, who was who published the first play about Antony and Cleopatra in blank verse decades before Shakespeare did his own play, Antony and Cleopatra. And many Shakespeare scholars believe he was influenced by Mary Sidney Herbert's play in his own composition of that play. She retold, she was educated, she knew Greek and Hebrew, as well as French and Italian, many languages. She was highly educated as a member of the Sidney family, Philip Sidney being the figure that we call now a Renaissance man. Philip Sidney was a, a major courtier, scholar, poet, author, soldier, and he was kind of a glamorous figure in the Renaissance. She was Philip Sidney's sister. And she and Philip collaborated together both on the psalm, translating the psalms into modern, for that time, English, because there were very traditional English verse translations of the psalms. And she and Philip, Mary Sidney and Philip, wanted to make the psalms more alive and more connected to real people's lives. And so she put, for example, into they would do free translations in a sense. They're using language not used in the King James Bible translations about the Psalms. You know, there is a, do, we, do we have access to those yes, nowadays? We do. we do. The Psalms are published and they weren't published at that time, interestingly, but there were manuscript copies that circulated. So the court knew about these Psalms. And Mary Sidney Herbert used the image of a fetus growing in the womb, a very much woman's image, right? For one of the images of how God knows us before we are born. But she mm-hmm. took it inside the woman's body, which is not something that we usually have. And mm-hmm. her niece, Mary Sidney Roth, who also became a poet and wrote love sonnets, wrote love sonnets, for example, where she used the, the metaphor of miscarriage, a woman losing a love as in a miscarriage, that you can't control the loss. And that is one of women's most common experiences of death in the period, right? The miscarriage of their pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And no male sonneteer, Shakespeare, Sidney, no one used an image of miscarriage and love sonnets. That was not considered appropriate. So what I found fascinating is that these women authors, Mary Sidney Herbert, who's one of the main leads in Imperfect Alchemist, and her niece, Mary Roth, who is the lead of my next novel that I'm working on right now, they used women's experiences and, and female imagery, as we would put it now, to tell stories that were, they were love sonnets, they were romances, but they told it with a different frame. So that, for example, when Mary Roth wrote her prose romance, Urania, which was a kind of follow through, you could say it's a, it's a nod to Philip Sidney's prose romance, Arcadia. These were romances that Shakespeare used in drawing from for his comedies, young lovers, they all sorts of difficulties, and then they come together in the end, and the end of the romance is the young lovers getting together. This will resonate for those of you who are familiar. That's Jane Austen, right? What did the women authors do? Well, Mary Roth took it beyond. So the women get married. Their husbands are unfaithful. They have children. They have grandchildren. And they their female friendships with each other in this female-authored romance, it is their friendships with each other that sustain them. And so one of my favorite lines that I'll share right here is that Mary Roth has two characters. One is saying, well, but my beloved is unfaithful and her best friend her female friends as well what would you expect he's basically a hero and she says i would not ex- expect my own husband to be faithful for fear of a miracle and and then she says to the main character so he's unfaithful let him go in his in his path another is more straight another path is more straight for you follow that and be the empress of the world commanding the empire of your own mind 
And I still wow. remember reading those words only in her un, her unpublished handwritten manuscript, her handwriting. This is that, really what we would consider early feminism. That just gave me chills to hear that line. Yeah. yeah. That's when I realized, wow, more people have to know about these women authors. They were saying radical things. Shakespeare in his comedies doesn't have the women say things like this. That these women authors are using different language, different images, different strategies to tell the stories of women's lives, lovers and pairing up. And, you, and it doesn't end with marriage. It continues yeah. far beyond it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It harkens back to me to Christine de Pizon and, yeah. and that, that sort of thing. And also, I'm the third volume of my medieval Languedoc trilogy is coming out September 21st. Oh, and the whole was, impetus for that was from my studies, The Women Troubadours. which was a really unusual. My books are all fictional, except I have peripheral historical characters. All my characters are fictional because it's so hard. There's so little about the actual people who are there. And, but that is totally, people just have no idea. And and there aren't many left. There's only one uh, song with words and text known by a woman that has survived. But you have one. There is one. But we have one. Yes. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. It is amazing. Just to finish the answer to the question, which I went off on a detour, I'm sorry, but um, the other main character in Imperfect Alchemist is Lady Mary Sidney's Herbert's maid, basically, her her serving maid, because I wanted to show what women experienced at this time um, in other, outside just the upper class. Mary Sidney Herbert, obviously, was she was in the highest class, and she was married to a lord, and she was a countess, but her maidservant was someone who was born in a commoner's family in the village, and her mother was an herbalist. So this is the connection to Mary Sidney Herbert was not just an author, but also a scientist. She was an alchemist, and she practiced alchemy in basically an early laboratory in her house, and she developed cures for ailments. In fact, many of the female alchemists, those in the upper classes, like Mary Sidney Herbert, they had money to order special, they could order from abroad, from Ceylon, and from India, all sorts of spices and herbs, and they did chemical cures as well. And they've experimented with test tubes in the laboratory. Meanwhile, Rose, who is my servant maid character, her mother was just a, she gathered herbs in her garden and she boiled them and she made remedies for the villagers. So she was very knowledgeable about natural herbs. And oftentimes you would actually find that the upper-class women alchemists would draw on the expertise of the working-class women alchemists. And they would say, come to my come to my house and let's talk about what are what remedies have you developed for to prevent miscarriage or to help with a headache. And so they would share their remedies. And the male alchemists of the time were constantly obsessed. This is parodied by Ben Johnson in his play, The Alchemist, with a search for turning base metals into gold. Into gold. Yeah, right. It was the search for gold. The women alchemists, they wanted to create herbal remedies and healing for real people. So they had a really different orientation as alchemists. And so I wanted to show that Women in different classes, the serving girl and this upper class woman, they both had constraints upon them. They couldn't make their own choices. Mary Sidney Herbert couldn't choose who she wanted to marry. Um, She was married off and she wasn't allowed to to publish freely. She had to circulate some of her works in manuscript because women were not supposed to publish at the time. Meanwhile, Rose, I discovered in writing about her that she is an artist as well. And she didn't have access to uh, fine art materials. But because she was working with Mary Sidney Herbert and Mary Sidney wanted her to illustrate the herbs that they were working with. And so she made sure that Rose got training with a court painter, Marcus Gerards, who would come to the Sidney family home to 
paint a portrait, a family portrait. And so as the countess, she could say, I would like you to give training to my maid. And she's a gifted artist, but she had drawn with chalk and chalk, not ever painted. So she learns how to mix paints and colors. And so I, I was really excited to learn a lot about art in the period and how women, again, had differential access to art materials, to art training, but the women could support each other. One of my most abiding passions in telling women's stories in this series is that I have found that often historical fiction about women pairs the woman with a famous man, saying, for example, that Amelia Lanier, who's another woman author, was Shakespeare's dark lady. She was Shakespeare's mistress. And that's a perfectly fine fictional conceit. But what bothers me is that why should we know about Lanier first in the now discredited and historical terms, people don't believe she was Shakespeare's mistress. She was, in fact, the first published woman poet in the Renaissance, even before Mary Sidney. I would rather look at all of that and consider maybe she was Shakespeare's mistress, but that's not, for me, the most interesting thing. There are multiple novels about Shakespeare's dark lady that put this historical woman's name, Amelia Lanier, into that role and don't really look at how she succeeded as an author. I believe that if women authors of the time were writing and being read, they should be known for that. And they should know be known for their relationships with each other, not just because they were the mistress of a famous Henry VIII. Think about all the novels about Henry VIII's wives. Those are really popular, which is, I love reading them. They're entertaining. But how many times do we need to read about another wife of Henry VIII because he's Henry VIII and he's important? Why can't we read about women authors and figures in the period who are not necessarily paired with a famous man? So that's my vision for the Shakespeare Sisters series. Yes. And and it's actually a very ambitious thing in the world of publishing because there is this fixation with people are not going to read about someone they've never heard of. Exactly. Right? Right. So you have to mention the marquee names. Right. Right. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in, in that realm? I found that very frustrating. I was so happy to hear from you that you resonated with that experience because I was being told we need market data to give a contract and we don't have any market data that a book, a novel about Mary Sidney Herbert would sell. And why is that? Because no one has ever published a novel about Mary Sidney Herbert. It's a vicious cycle, right? There's no market data, so we're not going to do it. But unless someone does it for the first time, you won't know. And so these other women authors, I was being told, these are interesting stories, but no one knows who these women are. So we are reluctant to publish a novel when these aren't already big names. And I understand that's why women often get paired with famous men. But I think there's other ways of telling their stories. And so I just resolved I would just keep trying and keep trying. And of course, my series is called Shakespeare's Sisters. And that's a nod to let's get the marquee name up there. There is a figure, a supporting character in Imperfect Alchemist, who only appears in the final third of the novel. Because it's not about Shakespeare. It's about Mary Sidney Herbert. And she yeah. did interact with him. He was influenced by her. So legitimately, I could put him into the story. But my interest was in telling her story, yeah. in yeah. reimagining, fictionalizing her story, everything we don't know, imagining what it was like for her. So, yeah, it is interesting how, how those decisions are made. When I think of Jesse Burton's The Miniaturist, for instance, oh, yeah. gorgeous book, fabulous you, book. But how? But that was not a known person. That was not a sort of marquee name and all that sort of thing. It was fabulous. It's I know it's difficult. I think it's like casting runes in the publishing. Yeah, it, it all is right. You just, just kind of keep sending it out there and hoping. And yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So then let's talk just a little bit how you ended up. What your route was to getting this published? Oh, so actually, I had. Really good advice from a Smith alum, Carol DeSanti, who for many years was an editor at Bradenhout Penguin. And she was actually the editor who first identified Tracy Chevalier's 
girl with a pearl earring and published it. So she was a doyen in women's publishing of identifying women authors of women's fiction. And I was really happy to be connected with her and in a conversation with her. And I sent her my first drafted novel, the one about Mary Roth, that has not been published yet. And she said, this is a really interesting novel, but there's, I know that Random House huge, they're going to look at market data. There's no market data. Mary Roth is even less known than Mary Sidney Herbert because Mary Sidney Herbert appears as a supporting character in Deborah Harkness's vampire trilogy, The Discovery of Witches, which I love. I love reading. And Deborah Harkness is a renowned feminist scholar of female alchemy and everything. So I knew Deborah Harkness as a scholar. I knew her writings before I knew her fiction. But in her second novel in The Discovery of Witches trilogy, Mary Sidney Herbert appears as a you know supporting character. And so Carol DeSanti said to me, because of that, she has a little bit more name recognition, right? You can point to she's appeared in a popular novel. Now, the one I was writing, the novel I was writing, doesn't have magic vampires, you know, or anything like that. It's a real historical fiction novel in the real world. It does have witches because witches, women were tried as witches in the real world. But there's no kind of imagined magic per se. I love that fantasy element of many novels, but that wasn't where my novel was going. But so Carol DeSanti said to me, I, I know it's discouraging because I can't give you a contract on the first novel, but I think you should go ahead and write your novel about Mary Sidney Herbert. That should launch your series because that's the novel that comes first anyway. Mary Sidney Herbert was the aunt and godmother of Mary Roth. So if you have that as your first novel in the series, then the others can all follow. And that was a wonderful suggestion. And another Smith alum, who was Carol DeSanti's good friend, they were in the class of the 1980s, I think, and Ruth Ozaki, who is a really well-known contemporary novelist, and Carol DeSanti were good friends at Smith. And Ruth was my colleague in the English department because we hired her to be a chaired professor of creative writing in the English department at Smith. And Carol DeSanti has been my colleague as well because she's been a visiting um, chaired lecturer in creative writing. Smith does a great job of hiring novelists to, to teach. But so Ruth Ozeki said to me, I really like Carol's advice to you because think about this. Now, your second, the second novel you're writing, you can learn from all the mistakes you made in your first novel, which isn't published yet. Mm-hmm. The second novel that you've drafted will be all the stronger, and that will be your first published novel, ideally. And you can only publish one debut novel. Mm-hmm. You, know, you want to make it the strongest novel you can. So Ruth also said to me, don't be discouraged. Just write the next novel. Make it the best novel you can. And that novel got the contract. It was, yeah. with, I believe it's much stronger novel because it wasn't my first novel. Now I'm going back and revising my first novel that I wrote to be a lot stronger because I learned a lot, as they both said, by writing the process. Yeah. And there's nothing, nothing can replace the sort of editorial feedback you get once you're, and the sad thing is that a lot of writers can't get that because the, the market keeps getting smaller and smaller, especially for historical fiction. Right. Um, and so that's partly why it's <laughs> partly what led me to the book coaching, which is the other side of what I do, right. because hopefully I help writers get to that point where they can, if they're going to submit their novel is just that much stronger. You know, I definitely, if I'd known about you doing book coaching, I would come to you earlier. I, I had another <laughs> woman author, former trade publisher editor who did that for me for the first novel and helped me through several iterations. I, that's <laughs> invaluable advice. But maybe yeah. you could say something about why is it that the historical fiction market, I've been told this, is narrower and tighter than ever. It's really hard to get. I think, yeah, I don't have a, a perfect answer for that. But I think part of it is that it's a symptom of the whole industry because all of these big houses have gobbled up all the smaller 
presses. And, you know, but I have friends who published and my friend, Anne Easter Smith, who writes about Richard III, right? She published, there's a hundred thousand copies, sales of a hundred thousand copies of her first two books, right? Yeah, right. She could not get anyone to take the final book in her series. She couldn't get any. She had a record, right? Oh my gosh. But it's because things changed and that what they're looking for now is not just solid mid-list books that people want to read. Right. They're looking for that something that might splash out and be a huge bestseller. And the same thing, similar thing happened to me, although I didn't sell 100,000 copies of my first novel, that it's okay, you didn't have a breakout, so we're not going to take a chance on you no matter how good your book is. Ooh, yes. Wow. Because but not all books can be massive bestsellers. Of and- course not. Yeah. And the thing is that I have readers, I have people who like my books, and as far as I'm concerned, as long as I can get them out there one way or another, that's mm-hmm. what I want to do. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't know if that's an answer. I think, too, that it's a symptom of the fact that people's attention spans have gotten shorter mm-hmm. and... People are still reading. Now, there's still lots of readers out there. But the thing is that novels like Anne's that were long and dense or like yeah. Sharon K. Penman or Margaret yeah, George, all those people, yeah. right. um, couldn't a publisher wouldn't take those today now if they yeah. came with it, you know? I wondered about that. I thought, because um, Margaret George was kind enough to give me a blurb for my novel, Imperfect Alchemist, because my agent also represents her and she read my novel. And I really enjoyed her novels. And I wondered, how did she get some of those early big novels published. I guess it was a different time. Totally different time. Totally different time. My agent worked with me for a year on my first novel, having told me when I first submitted it to him that it wasn't actually a novel. (laughs) Wait, what was was he saying? No, it's just that I I just didn't know anything. Uh And he gave me reading. I never took a a single creative writing class or anything. Yes, I I did. And so I learned. I taught myself and Mm -hmm. he took me on. And after working with me for another year on the manuscript, right. got me a book contract in two two weeks. Wow, that's wonderful. But that was then. That was 2003 or whatever it was. Wow. <laughs> that would not happen now. And I know because I know I've been part of the whole book coaching thing is really studying the publishing industry and everything. Yeah. But, but so it's a perennial problem. And what can I say? <laughs> I don't know. But let's get back to your book, sure. which is much more interesting. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about, you did talk some about the alchemy, but why imperfect? Because what I realized is that when, when someone is, say, a scientist, for example, or an author, you're experimenting with what you're doing. You don't have a final product that's perfect. You're striving towards perfection, but you have to make errors along the way. And what interested me about Mary Sidney Herbert as an author and as an alchemist is that she was an experimenter. She wasn't afraid to try new things. She, one of the things that as I teach her works that really I love telling my Smith students is that we read when she translated the Psalms, the English Psalms there, she translated say 120 of them or so. And she used 147 different verse forms in the course of translating Mm. 120 Psalms. Now that's really quite why you get one form, just use it for at least 50 of them or something. Mm. She kept trying, she kept experimenting. And it really, when I tried to get, understand her character, understand her as a historical figure, what really struck me was that she used translation as a way of experimenting and moving in new directions that hadn't yet been charted out. And as an alchemist, and for me, the image of the alchemist, the imperfect alchemist, is that you have to see her failing and things that don't go right. 
before you can see any success. And to me, there are more than one imperfect alchemist in the novel. Mm -hmm. Walter Raleigh, who was a very close friend of hers, was also an imperfect alchemist. He was successful historically in his role in court, but he made, you, you have to make missteps and failures. So just the whole idea of an alchemist is as a scientist, but also there's a kind of a magical element to it. But there's also, you need courage to experiment. And so that to me was part of what both of my female characters were doing. They were taking a chance doing things that they couldn't know they would succeed in without trying. Yeah. Yeah. So th that great explanation it makes total sense to me. But uh, switching gears a tiny bit, yes. let's talk about the difference between doing research for your historical novel and doing your academic research. Yes. So my academic research, which I've spent over three decades doing, I love going to archives. I love going into the Bodleian at Oxford and the British Library. I just, I love, I am a scholar kind of in my core and I love that kind of research. You read things that people didn't even know were there in the letters, in the diaries, in the journals. And those materials can then be used in your scholarship. So when I published the first academic book ever about Mary Roth, this woman author that I'm doing my second novel on, I was able to look at things that Roth wrote that weren't published or readily available except in archives. So any, as I was looking at Roth's, I was a literary um, critic, right? So I'm basically giving analyses of Roth's sonnet sequence and her play and her prose romance. And I could draw on the things that she wrote in her outside publication to make a case for how I see her strategies being used as an author. As a fiction writer, however, um, what I had to do was basically let loose my notion of expertise. I was asked a great question at one of the book talks I gave about if you could get rid of one thing in your scholarly toolbox that would make you a better novelist, what would it be? And I had to really think about that because I've needed all my research for it to supply the world, the three-dimensional world in the Renaissance. But I realized what I would get rid of is basically the kind of presumption of expertise. Because as a scholar, you're supposed to be the expert and you're supposed to, especially as a woman scholar, you have to show your expertise. So you never make a statement unless it's backed up by evidence. But as a novelist, it's entirely the opposite, right? You don't want to be tied down just to the facts. You want to invent and imagine and create a fully imagined world because there's many things that there are no facts for. So we have to invent them. And so if we as a novelist, as novelists, thought we had to have a research justification for everything we invented, we would never write novels. It would be impossible. Too much is not in the, the saved record from the Renaissance. And so I had to think I'd rather just be free to be an alchemist, to experiment, just to invent and not be tied just to the scholarly model. And it was very hard, Suzanne, yeah. to because you've been a scholar as well. It was really hard for me. Actually, I have, I put something up on, on my board over my writing desk that said, you're, you're basically, you have to be true to the story, not to history. Your story may go in directions that there isn't historical evidence for. Fine. I'm clapping here because right? actually I just literally at midnight on July 1st, I launched wow. a course, an online course called Rain in Your Research for Histor yeah. Historical Novelists. Yes. And that is my whole point is that you need to figure out what your story needs, yes. not, not become an expert in whatever it is That's you're right. writing about. Absolutely. You know? Yes, and yeah. I think that was actually one of the limitations for me with the first novel, because I was a scholar of Mary Roth. I knew far too much about her. So I was hampered by that to, in invention. When I did Imperfect Alchemist as a novel, I, I didn't, I, I had 
taught Mary Sidney Herbert. I, but I hadn't, I wasn't one of the world experts on Mary Sidney Herbert. So I was free to invent. And that made for a much more lively novel. I, yes. I love the idea of what you're talking about. Reign in your research because it can take over and deaden everything, pull it all down. Yeah, absolutely. It's like there's too much of a good thing is what it can be. But also, and and just more specifically on research, did you, for the things you had to have in your novel that you hadn't researched as an academic, did you use, what kinds of sources did you use? How did you do that? What was different about that kind of research? For me, that was really fun because I could try two new fields for me. One was the field of alchemy and especially female alchemists. And the thing that I learned was that, thank goodness for women feminist historians, who have done research into female alchemists, because otherwise not a lot of their recipes have survived, but some of those that have survived, these feminist historians published their alchemical recipes. Mary Sidney Herbert's recipes had not survived. So I didn't have anything that I could say, I knew this was her recipe, but I knew she knew some of the female alchemists whose recipes had survived, recipes for alchemy that were actual documents, because as a scholar, I wasn't afraid of historical research, right? Yeah. And so I, but and where did you find, were they in published books or did you find them in archives? What, what was that? Actually, one starting place, some of them I, I knew to look for some of the historians. I looked in their bibliographies and I looked at, I looked up for other, I, I really looked at bibliographies for other, everything from a bibliography to a book about a women author. What other things did they read? A bibliography about a male alchemist. What were some of the sources? So that I could go and look up those sources and know how to access them. As well as, and this is for anyone out there, I would look at all the bibliographies for any Wikipedia entry. And before I used anything, I would actually go and read the original sources. So I'm never going to base something just on a Wikipedia entry, but that will be my starting point. I'll think that's interesting. But no, where did that come from? Listen, I have to clarify that I did not pay you to say any of these things. (laughs) Great. No, I feel like we're (laughs) with each other. Yeah, so you agree, right? You can I agree. I, it's one of the things I say in my course is thank God for Wikipedia. Absolutely. I love it's, Wikipedia. Yeah, it's the starting point, but not the end point. Not the ending you know? point. Never yeah. stop there, but do start there because it mm-hmm. tells you things you never realized. And you think, okay, wait, let me go see where did that come from? That's how I learned about some of the female alchemists because there would be Wikipedia citations and I would look them up. And it's I'm also, and I know this, I'm very privileged to be a professor at a college, which has access to to a library system, the five college library system here in Western Mass. I can get almost any academic book that I want to through the college, the university library system. And I know that's not so easy to do if you're not already a professor um, or in an academic setting. But still, I found great resources in the public libraries, which I've used a lot as well. Yeah, but the other, what I, the, one of the resources I put in my course is bookfinder.com. Have you, do you know that? No, tell me. Bookfinder.com. I, I swear, it's a terrific search. You can search in any language. If you have the title of a book, you can go in there and, and see if, it, if you can get a copy of it. Wow. And, and it's how I discovered, I actually managed to get a copy when I was back, when I was a Handel scholar of a book of poems by Elizabeth Tollett, of which there were there are only about six lived wow. in the world. And I bought one. Yeah, so I have one right up here behind me. Yeah. And I also, you can, they have used and new and all that. It's sometimes they're really expensive, but you can find just about anything there. That, so sometimes if you don't have access to the library and you can afford it, you can buy things that way. But the other thing is that I also say that JSTOR is, you can get usually get into it from your public library. A lot of them have yeah. that. Yeah. JSTOR so, is probably my other most precious resource for getting all sorts of 
scholarly articles and just be able to read them just online. Um, And also you'll find, depending on what your field is that you're researching, that there are many more now online editions of things previously available, including women authors, women painters. There's a lot more online material. So you just need to look for it, but it doesn't all need to be purchased in hard copy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's like, being obsessive about getting your hands on 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 primary sources yes. to write a historical novel, you don't have to do that, right? You know, right. because it is fiction. It is fiction, absolutely. Yeah, oh. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say all of that. No, it's very, it's very validating. <laughs> so wonderful. And had I known you earlier, you would have been my mentor moving through this process because, as you as you yourself did, I had to learn this all pretty much myself. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. And there we were, like maybe half a mile away. I know, who knew? Southampton. I was so excited to find out that you oh, actually that is, lived in the same town. That is so funny. And we will get together for tea at some point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, anyway, is there anything else about your book that, that I haven't asked you about that you would want to talk about, tell people? Part of what I really, as a novelist, enjoyed the most in writing my novel was partly with this invented character, Rose, the serving maid who is an artist, that I learned about her as I wrote about her. And so I would really encourage anyone who's writing novels and listening to Suzanne's podcast to to consider how well you can get to know your character and what what you will learn about them as you write them. And so um, Ruth Ozeki, the novelist friend and colleague I mentioned, said to me, what you want to do is really get to know your characters, put them in a situation and see how they behave. So I never have plotted out all the novel and and where it was going to go in advance. I've always, I've had certain points that are historical facts that I know this happened and I get to touch on this. But with Rose, an invented character that I brought in, I didn't even know she was an artist until she, as a young girl, goes to the great house to to become the maid, lady's maid to the great lady. And she's nervous and scared and she drops her sack of belongings. And some things spill out of the sack. So I'm writing. I remember this experience really clearly. I'd gone on a solo writing retreat just for myself to get away from the college and all my teaching responsibilities. Mm. Uh, so I was in, in a little B&B in Maine and I'm writing. And so everything spills out of Rose's sack. And the great lady says, Rose, could you show me what, what these are? She picks up some papers that spilled out. And Rose is really nervous and hands her these papers, which it turns out are her father, who's, who was a cloth merchant, his account papers on one side, on the other side was blank. And so she had started sketching herbs from her mother's garden on the back because they couldn't afford art paper for her to draw Mm -hmm. on blank paper. That would be very expensive. Mm -hmm. But on the back of her father's account paper, she had started sketching. And so the great lady said, you are an artist. This is amazing, Rose. And I was so excited. I didn't know Rose was an artist. And then it turns out that Rose as an artist has an entirely different personality than Mary Sidney Herbert, who's an author, right? Very verbal. She's a great lady. She's a countess. She is very bold and courageous and she speaks up. She's very eloquent. Rose is very quiet. She's an artist and she watches people, but she sees things. And Mary Sidney Herbert, who is so having to, to carry on her role as a countess, misses. And so Rose will see things about relationships between people, like a young the, the young male doctor who falls in love with Mary Sidney Herbert. And Mary Sidney Herbert thinks he's in love with her niece. And Rose says, no, my lady, let me show you these drawings. And she shows drawings she sketched where Mary Sidney Herbert thinks, what? You can see that Matthew Lister, this doctor, is looking at Mary Sidney Herbert with kind of adoration in his eyes. And Mary Sidney Herbert didn't allow herself to even consider that possibility. Mm-hmm. But when her artist lady's maid shows her these drawings, she realizes Rose saw stuff she completely missed. So yeah. I loved it that you 
depending on what your point of view is, right? You could mm-hmm. show something entirely differently because I had two characters and two points of view, Rose in the first person and Mary's point of view told in a third person narrative, but it was still Mary's point of view. You could see similar scenes happening from two entirely different points of view. Mm-hmm. And, and so I encourage all of you who are writing your characters to say, what did your character see in that scene? Not just what is your agenda for that character, what you want them to say in that scene, but what are they hearing? What are they thinking? Part of being a novelist is not knowing in advance everything about your characters so that you can learn about it as they Absolutely. Speak. Absolutely. But what you do have to have in your mind, I think, is to understand what your character fears, what Absolutely. your character wants, all of those things, what the the whole that that sort of thing. And then once you have that basically set and you let them go on the page, that yeah. kind of helps you guide them that. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Suzanne, what they fear and what they hope, what they desire. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then if you know what their first memory is, that's nice. And then later you realize, oh, this is the moment in the novel at which that early memory is relevant. I'm not mm. going to put it in just because I'm putting it in to show yeah. because it actually happens because of the scene. It calls to mind that yeah. early memory, maybe an early trauma or an early excitement. Yeah, that whole thing of how to handle the backstory. That's a yeah, huge exactly. That's a huge right. piece as well. well Absolutely. Yeah, that can weigh it down if you're trying to, oh, I better let them know all this stuff happened. And yeah, that, yeah. that can really be. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So this is fun. Been... I, mean, I felt like I would get up each morning to write the next chapter and think, I wonder what's going to happen today. And, oh. and so for me, that process of composition was exciting. And just it was a learning process. And so that's part of what I love about being a novelist is learning about my characters deeper and deeper, more than they might know about themselves as I yeah. write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then your readers see things that you never see. That's right. That's the other thing. Oh, wow. And then later, you I was listening to the audiobook recording by these wonderful British actresses, right, of my novel, which is just great because obviously they're British. I was writing these English women in the 16th, 17th century. But to hear these British women actresses reading their voices, all of a sudden it made my novel have a life apart from me. I all of a sudden heard things that I hadn't consciously put in when I was writing, but I thought, oh, wow, that connects. I didn't know. I didn't yeah. plan that. But, but you have to get some distance on your own text, right? To be able yeah. to hear what you've done. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This has been a really fun conversation. I loved it. Susan. I can't <laughs> wait to talk to you some more. Yeah. I know. I know. Absolutely. And when your next novel comes out, uh, yes. I'll read it and we'll get, we'll talk again. But be- before, long before then, we yes. will meet for tea yes. in Northampton. Absolutely. Thank All you. right. Thank so you so much thank- for the conversation. It's a total pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Suzanne. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.